Hi, welcome to Bread. Over the next two weeks, we're giving special attention to the stories of Jesus in the week leading up to his death and resurrection. We believe this moment changed the course of human history for all time. God continues in this personal and global trajectory-changing work by his Spirit. Take a listen. Oh man, would you like to take a seat? Uh, very nice to see you all. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name's Ed, and along with Hannah, I lead the church uh, that meets here. It's great to have you with us. Um, I just wanted to re- reiterate what Hannah was saying. Um, it was so fun last week. Uh, thank you so much for everyone who did so much for it. It was um, just, just great. Uh, anyway, next week we are beginning a new series on the first three chapters of Genesis, the creation account. Um, which uh, is going to be great. We're going back to the start. Um, when Coldplay were good. Ah, oh, uh, those were the days. Um, anyway, that's next week. This week, I um, wanted to just carry on uh, a little bit of the resurrection story. So uh, I'm going to read a famous passage uh, that happens eight days after um, the uh, resurrection. So this equivalent Sunday, um, and this is from John's Gospel, chapter 20, starting at verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand, and put it into my side. Stop doubting, and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miracles, miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, famous Thomas. There isn't actually much known about Thomas. He doesn't really feature in the other Gospels at all, and there's just two instances of him in John's Gospel. He's mentioned here using both his Aramaic and his Greek names, both of which mean twin, so he was probably a twin. But because there's so little written about him, trying to come up with a kind of full picture of who he was will involve a little bit of speculation. Nevertheless, I want to try and flesh him out just a little bit. So earlier in chapter 11, when Jesus tells uh, his disciples that he is going to go back to Judea to visit Lazarus, who's died, this is when Thomas first crops up. And the one thing recorded is Thomas saying this, let us also go so that we may die with him. Cheery Thomas. Now, this could be and is often interpreted as being courageous and triumphant. Judea is where Jesus had previously been and the religious authorities had tried to stone him there. So perhaps 
Thomas is suggesting there's an opportunity for some valiant martyrdom here. But on the other hand, it could also be very different. Lazarus's death, after all, is not a valiant one. He just, uh, he fights sickness and eventually dies. So it's actually more of a pitiful death. And it's that death that prompts G Thomas to say he wants to go and die. So perhaps Thomas is not being valiant or courageous at all. Perhaps Thomas just thinks that maybe death would be better. Either way, I think there's something disturbing about a young man in his prime fantasizing about death, whether triumphantly or hopelessly. It's certainly not very Christian. Christianity is about the fullness of life. After all, Jesus didn't say, I've come to bring death and death in all its fullness. He said, I've come to bring life and life in all its fullness. The beating heart of the Christian faith is that life is worth living and life is good and that we need Jesus to transform it into all its beauty right here and now as well as, of course, on and into eternity. Secondly, we know that Thomas doesn't quite get what Jesus is going on about most of the time. In the only other passage which mentions him by name, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's saying, uh, you will know the where I am going, and you will be able to get there with me through death into resurrection. But Thomas says this, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now, I'm reading into it a bit here, but perhaps there's a tinge of defeat in his tone there as well. We don't know where you're going, we don't know how to get there. You keep talking in all these riddles and weirdness. Why are we doing this? I don't know. What we do know for sure, though, is that Thomas has been alone. After Jesus dies, the disciples are obviously grieving, and, of course, people grieve in lots of different ways. But whilst the rest of the disciples choose to be together in their grief, Thomas chooses to be by himself. Verse 24 from our reading. Now, Thomas called Didymus one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. He's missed the resurrection so far and waited eight days by himself. And finally, and most famously, of course, Thomas doubts. Poor old Thomas, known forever and ever 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 as Doubting Thomas. Quite a thing to carry around with you. What are your skills, Thomas? Do you have nunchuck skills, bow hunting skills, computer hacking skills? No, I'm, I'm quite skilled at doubting. That's it. So who do we have here? Possibly hopeless, definitely slow, interested in dying, certainly alone, and known ever since as a doubter. Thomas, not all that much. And yet, he is one of the best-known disciples. It's him who is given pride of place, mentioned by name, right at the very climax of this whole gospel. He doesn't feature in the other gospels, but the writer of John has chosen to direct the spotlight on him. Lonely, doubting, gloomy Thomas. He's not heroic. He's not aspirational. So why is he here? The reason is very, very simple. Thomas is the perfect example of conversion. He is the perfect example of change. He is what happens when Jesus' resurrection power meets someone and revolutionizes their whole being. 
You see, John's gospel is written about a generation or so after Jesus' resurrection. And what John's original audience would know by then is not necessarily what Thomas had been. What they would know is what Thomas has become. And he, just like all the other disciples, having met the resurrected Lord, goes out to preach the news of the kingdom, to preach the news that Jesus has come back to life, that he is ruler. And he goes to, uh, almost certainly, to India. His relics are supposedly still there in Chennai, in India. And pretty much every church in India will have um, uh, some sort of reference to Thomas the Apostle. He is the patron saint of India. He preached to countless people. He built lots of churches. And there is one story which is probably apocryphal, which I quite like. But nevertheless, uh, John's audience would know. And that is that when Thomas arrives in India, he is met by the king of India. And the king of India knows that Thomas is a very skilled carpenter. And so, the king of India says, I want you, Thomas, to build me a palace. And Thomas says, yes, okay. And then the king says, I'm going to give you loads and loads of money to build it. So he goes, great, thank you very much. I will go and do that. He goes off and he gives all the money to the poor, to the destitute, to the hungry, to the unclothed. Then he goes back to the king and the king says, yeah, I'm going to, and he says to the king, I'm going to need a little bit more money for this palace. Uh, I haven't quite done the walls yet. Could you give me some more money? So he gives him some more money. The king's going, this is going to be great. I can't wait for this palace. Gives all the money to the poor again. Teaches them, preaches to them, clothes them, feeds them. The king says, so how's my palace coming along? Uh, are we there yet? And Thomas says, well, I haven't quite done the, um, the, the roof yet, so I probably need a bit more money. Can you give me the roof? Uh, and so he give, gives him the money, goes and gives all the money to the poor again. Finally, the king says to him, uh, I'm really excited. Can't wait to see it. Can I come and see the palace? He goes, yep, yeah, i finished the palace. I'm sitting in the palace. So they go to the site where the palace is supposed to be. There's no palace there. He goes, what have you done with my palace? He says, well, I've built one. I've built one. It's just not an earthly one. It's a heavenly one where the poor are clothed, the sick are healed, the hungry are fed, and they all are entered into the kingdom of God. Thank you very much for the money. The king says, I'm going to skin you alive. And then, dramatically, supernaturally, both the king and his brother meet with Jesus. Thomas baptizes them. They become Christians. Probably apocryphal, nevertheless, a good story. And certainly what John's audience would know. But what the writer of John wants to say is, yeah, that's him, but it wasn't always him. You see, it's very tempting for us to want to glorify the characters of the Bible, to paint them in their most flattering lights. We love a hero, don't we? But the truth is, the Bible is actually full of a mixed bag of characters. Nearly all of them, in fact all of them, are flawed, even the best ones, and some of them are downright reprobates. They are terrible, but the Bible is completely honest and open about them, saying these are the people. The Bible owns them because Jesus owns them, because people are people. I think it's for two reasons. Firstly, the Bible is very honest. But secondly, when all the secondary characters of the story are shown to be the mixed bags that they really are, the central perfect character shines all the more brightly in contrast. 
The Bible is not about all these characters. It's about one character. And the Bible doesn't say you need to be like Abraham or you need to be like David or you need to be like Peter. It doesn't actually really say you need to be like Jesus. There's lots we can learn from it. What it says is look at Jesus. Look at him. In all his glorious perfection, he shines like the stars. And no one, no one possibly, however hard they try, could ever be anything like this extraordinary figure. Look at all these people who have tried. And yet Jesus is there, not for us to try and be like, but to fall down at his feet and worship. And ask him to fill us with his presence so that we might change. And this is why we know about Thomas. Because this is exactly what Thomas does. He's no hero. He's a bit of a mess. But he does do the right thing. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. This is actually what Jesus calls all of us to. This is the doorway into the life of fullness that we are sensing, that we want, that we desperately need, and that Jesus says he provides for us. On the other side of that doorway is hope and purpose and freedom and light. And so this morning, what I want to try and do is show how I think that process works. I warn you, this is a public health warning. It is going to be very simple but not very easy. First of all, whatever else Thomas is, he's honest. We're going to have to be honest. Thomas tells all the other disciples he's not going to believe Jesus is alive unless he puts his finger in the nail marks in his hand. He admits his unbelief. He admits his doubt. We're going to have to be honest. When our whole upbringing has given us the message that we all need to show to the world that we're actually fine. We're better than fine, we're amazing. We are living our best life all the time, are we not? To present a perfect version of ourselves to the world. When all we're hearing is we've got to do that, it can feel crippling, the idea of actually admitting any need whatsoever. To admit unbelief. That there might actually be some chinks in the army, that we actually can't hold it all together. But let me let you into a little secret. Everyone's faking it. Everyone. Every single one is faking it to some degree or not. The evidence is there for all of us to see. We have so much, don't we? And yet we can be so unhappy. Do you know that the rate of depression amongst adults in the US has almost quadrupled in the last two years? Now, obviously, the pandemic has a huge amount to say for why that is, but it's gone from 8.5% of adults suffering the effects of de depression to 33%. One in three people. Despair and sadness, unsurety, chinks in the armor, these things breed in the shadows. 
when they're not acknowledged, when they're not set out in front of other people, in front of ourselves, and particularly in front of our God. But Jesus will meet us exactly where we are. So take courage. Be honest. Thomas has told the other disciples, he hasn't even told Jesus. But such is the kindness of Jesus that when Jesus appears, Jesus knows exactly what Thomas has already been thinking. Verse 27, put your finger here, see my hands, Jesus says, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. There's an old film starring um, uh, Robin Williams, The Fisher King, 1991. Two people nodding their heads. Um, if you know Robin it's a kind of Robin Williams film. It's pretty schmaltzy. Basically, Robin Williams is a homeless man, and um, he is uh, there, and he sees Amanda, um, uh, Amanda Plummer, her character, and he sort of watches her from afar, and he knows everything about her. He watches her go to work, buying coffee, going to the bookstore. She's a little bit clumsy. She doesn't really have any friends. She's a little bit unusual, but he's been watching her. And in watching her, despite the fact that they've never actually spoken, he begins to fall in love with her, just from seeing her. She doesn't even know that he exists. Now, Jeff Bridges helps, his character helps Robin Williams kind of get on his feet, and he ends up setting up a date between Robin Williams and Amanda Plummer. And at the end of the date, they walk back to her apartment, and then suddenly she gets very, very anxious. Suddenly she's going, what on earth am I doing? You are going to just be like everyone else. You're going to find out what I'm like, and then you're going to sleep with me and then leave me, and I'll never see you again because I'm, I'm a bit unusual. I'm not lovable. But then Robin Williams says this, I know I love you, not just from tonight. I've known for a long time. I know you leave work at noon. I know you hate your job. I know you don't have many friends and that you're a little bit uncoordinated and you don't feel as wonderful as everyone else and feeling as alone and as separate as you are and I love you and I think you're the best thing since sliced bread and I won't be distant. I'll come back in the morning if you let me. And then tentatively, Amanda Plummer hugs him and says, wow, you're real, aren't you? I know it's schmaltzy. I know it's cheesy. I know it's a bit creepy, someone watching someone for a long time. But if we park a bit of the cynicism, it's also quite moving, isn't it? And I think from a Christian perspective, it's moving because it taps into something that we don't just want, that we actually need for someone somewhere to see us exactly as we are and to love us exactly as we are. And it's not just someone, it's the one we're made for. That's what we're pining for. I think often people um, have a sort of understanding of God as a bit short-tempered, a bit too busy, a bit angry and distant. Perhaps that's how he's been represented to you when you've grown up. But Jesus here says he knows Thomas. He knows what's on his mind. He knows his thoughts and his fears and his doubts. And he knows you. He knows what's going on for you. All of it. He knows all about us. And he says, I love you and I believe in you. We've got to be honest. 
could we just agree all together as friends that this is the end of all pretense before the Lord? That we're not going to put on a show anymore? It's a total waste of time. Should we just agree that together? Take courage. Be honest. He does hear your prayers. Secondly, we've got to believe. Now, if you were to ask most people on the street um, what they thought of Jesus, I think a very common answer would be, he's a great teacher, isn't he? Everyone loves Jesus' teaching. Such great teaching, isn't it? We don't need to worry about the supernatural stuff. That's probably all made up. But we do need to concentrate on the teaching. If only we could just do what he said, turn the other cheek, do good to those who persecute us, sell all our possessions and give the money to the poor, the world would be a fantastic place. Let's all agree that that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? And it's true. Jesus' teaching is amazing. But that approach that Jesus just being a teacher is destined to fail. Because you can tell people all you like that this is the best way to live. But if that's all you're doing, it's never enough. Because the history of the world is various people desperately trying to organize society so that if we just live like this, everything would be fine and it never works. Because even if you do it, even if you do live the perfect life, the person next to you, I know them, they're not going to do it. They'll probably buy a monster truck. (laughs) Apologies to anyone who owns a monster truck. I'm just jealous. And God knows this, doesn't he? Because if he thought that what the world really needed was great teaching, there would be no reason to come as a person, to live and to teach, to enter into the dirt of the world, the suffering of the world, to go to a cross and die, to resurrect to glorious life, because he could just be a teacher. He wouldn't even need to be divine. But God knows that the only thing powerful enough to bring lasting change, the only thing powerful enough to rescue a hurting world, to actually change us from the inside out, is if he defeats all that that holds us back. And that's what he has come to do. He's not a teacher. He's not even a God. He is the one and only God who took flesh, died, and three days later rose again and is alive today. He is the one who reigns victorious. He has defeated sin. He's the one that we're looking for. We've got to believe. It's very good, though, to have questions. It's very healthy to tug at the threads that make up the garment of your beliefs. I understand that for many people this has been going on for some time, to sort of move beyond the belief of their upbringing, to move beyond the belief of their parents, maybe. It's healthy. I do not love the word deconstruction. I do like the word remodeling. As I've joked before, the danger of deconstructing is that you are left with the sort of um, disintegrated rubble of your beliefs and the Enneagram. And (laughs) that's not enough. Remodeling, though, is a partnership. Remodeling is saying, I believe, I believe and I want you, Jesus, to help me sort out all the decrepit, all the broken parts of this edifice that you're living in so that it can be glorious and right and good. That's what we're after. So start there. 
everything else can fall into place in good time. I've been doing this faith thing for quite a long time. Do you know how often I change my mind about lots of things? All the time, all the time. I have no real idea what's going to happen at the end of the world. Sometimes I think I do, and then sometimes I don't. We're working it out, me and God together. Gender? I, what maybe? I don't know. What? I don't know what to, sometimes five minutes I'm thinking, yep, I know what I think about that. And then five minutes later, I think the absolute opposite. If you have the answer on gender, could you just let me know? I would be very grateful. The point is, the world is complex. People are complex. It's why the Bible is not some sort of um, self-help manual with easy answers because that would be a total waste of time because life is not easy. It doesn't permit simple answers. We work them out with Jesus. It's going to take a lifetime. I'm way in front of most of you. It's still going to take a lifetime. So you've got to be open and you've got to believe. But finally, and most challenging, You've got to submit. Belief is not actually enough. Lots of people believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But did you know that more than two-thirds of Americans who identify as Christians say that their faith has no real or significant impact on their life whatsoever? Notice that Thomas does not say, I believe. He says something much, much, much more challenging. He says, my Lord and my God. Christianity spread faster than anything the world has ever seen before or since. Its explosion across the known world in the years after Jesus' resurrection was astounding. And in general, the way it spread was through the poor, the marginalized, the downtrodden, the slaves, and the servants. But it didn't spread because of some radical ethical teaching that they all enjoyed. Try telling someone whose life has been one episode of injustice after another to just turn the other cheek. Try telling someone who has been victimized and downtrodden and abused and manipulated to love their neighbor and to pray for those who persecute them. Good luck with that. And yet, it was precisely these types of people who proliferated the Christian gospel. It was precisely these people who believed and preached and spread the news about Jesus. It was precisely these people who did turn the other cheek and did pray for their enemies and did love their neighbors. Why? Because they'd experienced something much, much greater than just radical ethical teaching or even just a belief that Jesus is the Son of God. What they experienced was the lordship of God, that he reigns and that he was lord of it all. Every single aspect of life. What the resurrection means is that Jesus is Lord. It means he is God. He has infinite power. He created the heavens and the earth. And one bit I've always liked in Genesis, which we will get onto next week, is as a throwaway line. It says he also created the stars. There are billions of billions of stars just in our galaxy. There are billions and billions and billions of galaxies. We don't know how many they are, and he also created the stars. This is the Lord God, Jesus Christ. The resurrection means Jesus is the Lord, alive and well and mighty in power. So let me challenge us all, including myself. It's not going to be enough to believe. 
We've got to let him rule. Now, I know that talk of kingdoms and rules and kings, particularly for Americans, not too good with that. <laughs> British people, we love it. <laughs> but to be honest, I don't really think that's the problem. The problem is, if someone's going to rule, we've got to admit that there's another kingdom that needs defeating. The kingdom of pain and selfishness and self-centeredness and pride and greed and anger. And who wants to admit that? It's much better when we just do cake, isn't it? On a Sunday. So the challenge for all of us in every single aspect of our life, our relationships, our finances, our career, our beliefs, how we spend our, our, our time, what we value, to let him be Lord. I don't want to make light of this. This is serious. What might happen if we do? Well, he might ruin our lives. We've got to hold out that possibility. He might ruin our lives. You know that big fear that you have that if you really let him be Lord, he's going to tell you that you're not allowed to wear nice clothes anymore. You're going to wear sandals with socks, but not in a cool, ironic way. And you're going to have to move to the deepest, darkest, horrible backwater that you never want to go somewhere like Bakersfield. And you're going to have to preach the gospel there. That fear, acknowledge it, got to be honest. He could ruin your life because you won't be in control. However, if he were to do that, it would be completely inconsistent with the whole thrust of his teaching, his own declaration of what he has come to do. Let me remind you what he has come to do. John the Baptist's disciples told him all about the things Jesus had said and done. Calling two of them, John the Baptist sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came from John to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases sickness and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind so he replied to the messengers go back and report to John what you have seen and heard the blind receive sight the lame walk those who have leprosy are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor What Jesus says is when he is Lord, he will revolutionize your life so that you might live again in every aspect. It's an ongoing battle, isn't it? I know that I just want to take back control over and over again. And the symptoms that this brings are initially great sense of freedom. And then quite quickly, a great sense of anxiety. as it's all down to me again. Jesus says, let me be Lord. 
and see what I can do. See what he can do. As John's Gospel ends, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Go for life. In every aspect of your life, go for life, the life of Jesus. He will not let you down. We've just been singing it over and over and over again. He will not let you down. Go for life. That's what he's come to bring. Amen? Amen. Shall we stand? So we always pray for people at the end of our services. We pray for people because we acknowledge what Jesus says is that by ourselves we can't really do much. But in the power of his spirit he can completely transform us. He can fill us. What Melissa was talking about, that never-ending flow of water, the water of his spirit filling you up from your head to your feet. Now anyone who's a Christian has the spirit he comes and uh, makes his dwelling amongst you, never to leave. But we are humans and we leak his presence. We allow him to spill out of ourselves through things we do, through things that are done to us, through just the ticking of time, because we are human. What Jesus has come to do is to enable the Spirit to be poured out once and for all and over and over and over again. Paul talks about the Spirit being something who is constantly at work in the life of the believer. So what we're doing when we're opening ourselves to him is just saying, I want some more. Now, you might just be very fine with the little bit you have, but Jesus wants to pour it into you, his whole presence, from your head to your feet and revolutionize you. I have seen extraordinary things in people's lives. We heard the beginnings of some extraordinary things in people's lives last Saturday. No, we didn't. Our Sunday. <laughs> this is what he comes to do. Would you like him to be Lord? Big challenge. Why don't you just close your eyes where you stand? You don't have to do this. You're never under any pressure to do anything here at church, but it just help you not be distracted by beautiful Ben. And if you'd like, you can just open your hands, just as a sign of being open. And in your own heart and mind, why don't you invite the Holy Spirit to come and do whatever he would like to do? How much more will my Father give the Holy Spirit to everyone who asks, says Jesus? Press down, overflowing. He's like the water of life who refreshes the very depths of our souls. So let me add my prayers to your prayers. Come, Spirit of the living God, fill your people. see the spirits touching a number of people just let them know that he's welcome that he's good
I bless what you're doing. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. Sometimes I feel like God speaks to me. I'm just going to say this. Feel free to completely ignore it. You'll know if it's you or not. There's someone here who feels like there's been a kind of uh, a rod, like a yoke put on the back of their shoulders. It's too heavy to bear and it's pushed your neck down. It feels like you're constantly living with this weight. And it's the weight of um, words said by someone very close to you, by, I think, a mother, by your mother. And it's just negativity. Now, Jesus comes to set people free. He comes to set people free. And he is here to release the burdens, to take the yoke of imprisonment and slavery from you and to set you free. So just welcome his presence. He loves you and he's good and he's kind. We thank you, Jesus.